Welcome to American Dissident Voices. I'm Kevin Alfred Strom. It's time again for the mindless flag-waving, even more mindless than the drinking that goes with it. It's Memorial Day weekend once again. A few miles from here, Bowlesburg, Pennsylvania, is having its annual Memorial Day festival in which they celebrate their claim that they were the first to originate the holiday, in which, more than 150 years ago, white women decorated the graves of their husbands and brothers, who marched off to kill other white husbands and brothers by the hundreds of thousands. In Bowlesburg, they are particularly proud, a festival spokeswoman squawked on local television, of the fact that those white men died not for their own people, but for the supposed benefit of blacks. Down in the former Confederacy, Charleston, South Carolina to be exact, they have a competing Memorial Day claim. According to their story, Charleston was the site of the first Memorial Day festivities, all organized and performed exclusively by Negroes back during the Civil War. We whites are just playing catch-up. And all to honor the Union invaders who died and who killed their fellow whites, all supposedly on behalf of blacks. Not much for us to choose from between those two stories. But there is a lesson, an extremely important lesson, for white people during this holiday. Stop fighting wars for those who hate you and want you dead. Stop being brainless and realize that the Civil War was not, and practically no war since then has been, fought for our interests. Because cynical money men, then white-hating Jews, took over our government long ago. And to them, we are just expendable cannon fodder for their inhuman schemes of illegitimate rule and profit. A couple of years ago, I was host to a fine writer who came to visit me here in mountainous, nearly all-white, western Pennsylvania. Over the course of two days, we went to a couple of restaurants in the area. Both restaurants included in their decorating schemes Endless U.S. flags and military insignia, uniforms and memorabilia of Pennsylvanians who had given their all and died in the service of the Washington regime and its real owners. It was almost a form of worship, so intense that my friend could barely stand it, and it's everywhere across what remains of white America. We need to stop worshiping the regime in Washington, which is killing us. We need to stop sacralizing its wars. 
Yes, we need to memorialize those who died, but we must understand who our real enemies are and who we should be fighting. Let's awaken some of these good folks to the reality of their dispossession and the abuse of their bravery and good nature. Let's educate as many of them as possible about the story of the USS Liberty and make this week and next the best Liberty education campaign we've ever launched. To that end, this week and next, I will be presenting our now traditional National Alliance USS Liberty Truth Campaign. Help our people understand that the men of the Liberty died under the guns of America's real enemies. Once they have assimilated that truth, they will gain the ability to understand that all of America's war dead for a hundred years and more have also died at the hand of that same enemy. Listen. Blast open the cover-up. This week's program will help you do just that. Today's subject is going to be longer than usual. I am going to present two programs this week and next. William Pierce's hard-hitting essay on the USS Liberty. Some facts that have come to light since then. And also information on what you can do to raise consciousness about this Jewish attack on America in your community. Visit natall.com slash liberty. That's very easy to remember. That's N-A-T-A-L-L, short for National Alliance, dot com slash liberty. And get this important essay as a PDF file that we want you to print by the hundreds or thousands as a flyer and distribute them in your community. American Dissident Voices Today we begin the National Alliance's USS Liberty Truth Campaign. Our purpose is to spread by every means available to us, radio, the internet, letters to the media and public officials, and printed flyers distributed all over our nation. The truth about this atrocity. Today we begin with the basic facts of the case, as presented on this program just before the 30th anniversary of the attack, as written and delivered by National Alliance founder Dr. William Pierce. There is no better or more honest summary of the facts. In the text version of this broadcast, I have updated the text where necessary to account for the passage of time. On next week's program, we'll give further details on this pivotal event of betrayal and murder, 
some of which have come to light only gradually or in recent years. And now, sit back, relax, and listen to the moving voice of one of the greatest speakers our race has produced since the dawn of audio recording, Dr. William Pierce, as he tells us the true and horrifying story of betrayal and murder, the story of what happened to the USS Liberty. June 8, 1967, is a day which will live in infamy. On this day, an American Navy vessel, the USS Liberty, was deliberately attacked in international waters by the armed forces of Israel in a treacherous attempt to sink the ship and kill everyone aboard it. The Liberty was an electronic intelligence gathering vessel, and it had been sent to the eastern Mediterranean to monitor radio communications. Israel had launched its latest land-grabbing war against its neighbors just four days earlier, and the U.S. government was curious as to what its Jewish ally was up to. The Jews, on the other hand, were quite determined that the United States not learn what they were doing. The Jewish plan was to grab as much Arab land as possible before the United States could figure out what was going on and begin insisting that Israel halt its latest aggression. The Jews didn't want the United States, their principal source of military, economic, and diplomatic support, to tell them to cool it until they had achieved all of their objectives. And so it was important to the Jewish warlords to keep the American military in the dark for a few more days. Early on the morning of June 8, 1967, the Liberty was just over 12 miles off the Egyptian coast in international waters and in sight of the Egyptian town of El Arish, monitoring radio signals and flying a large American flag. Jewish forces had occupied El Arish two days earlier, and the Israeli army was involved in killing a large number of Egyptian prisoners of war that very morning. Groups of Egyptian prisoners were marched into the desert, made to dig their graves, and then were shot by their Jewish captors. American personnel on the Liberty would not have been able to see these atrocities from more than 12 miles away but they were intercepting Israeli radio communications discussing local operations. Of much more serious concern to the Jews was the interception by the Liberty of radio communications concerning their strategic military intentions, specifically their planned invasion of Syria. Just after dawn, a twin-engine propeller-driven Israeli reconnaissance plane flew out from the coast and slowly circled the Liberty three times. A little before 9 a.m., an Israeli jet fighter flew out and circled the Liberty. Throughout the morning and early afternoon, the Jews sent one aircraft after another out to circle the Liberty. Some of these aircraft flew so low that the crew members aboard the Liberty could see the faces of the pilots. The Jews were keeping the liberty under very close observation and seemed to be concerned about the presence of the eavesdropper. 
the Israelis finally decided to get rid of this threat to the secrecy of their military operations. At 2 p.m., several Israeli jet fighters streaked out from the coast and without warning began raking the Liberty from stem to stern with rockets, 30-millimeter cannon fire, and napalm. A number of Americans on the bridge and deck of the Liberty were killed immediately. The Jewish aircraft made pass after pass over the ship, pouring their fire into the helpless, slow-moving American target, riddling it from stem to stern with explosive ordnance and leaving it looking like a floating piece of Swiss cheese. The hull and superstructure of the Liberty had 821 holes larger than a man's fist from the rocket and cannon fire. Among other things, the Jewish air attacks had shot away the Liberty's radio antennas and wrecked the radio room. As soon as the Israeli jets had exhausted their munitions and flown off, the crew immediately ran up another American flag to replace the one the Jews had shot away. The new flag was an oversized one, seven feet high and 13 feet long. Then, while the crew was fighting fires started by the aerial napalm attacks and attempting to tend to the wounded and dying men on the deck, three Israeli torpedo boats appeared and began raking the decks of the Liberty with 20-millimeter and 40-millimeter automatic cannon fire. The Liberty's life rafts in the water were machine-gunned by the Israelis. Then a torpedo from one of the torpedo boats struck the ship, tearing a large hole in its side below the waterline and killing 22 more crew members. Just before the torpedo struck, the Liberty's radio men had managed to rig an emergency antenna and get an auxiliary transmitter working. Throughout the attack, the Jews were using radio jamming equipment in an attempt to drown out any radio message from the Liberty. Nevertheless, the Liberty managed to get off one radio message to the U.S. 6th Fleet, reporting the attack and calling for help. The 6th Fleet to the west in the Mediterranean responded with a message that help was being sent. The U.S. aircraft carriers America and Saratoga launched jets which sped toward the Liberty. As soon as the Jews realized that the 6th Fleet had received the Liberty's signal, the attacks were halted. The clear intention of the Jews had been to disable the ship's radio communications and then sink it before a radio message could be sent. Any survivors in the water then would have been killed by the Jews. No one would be able to prove the Jews had done it, and it could be blamed on the Egyptians. As soon as the Jews understood that their scheme had failed, they shifted from the military to the diplomatic mode. The murderous assault on the USS Liberty had been a mistake, the Jews claimed. They had thought the ship was Egyptian, they told their media friends and their bought politicians in Washington. President Lyndon Johnson didn't even wait for this excuse from the Jews. As soon as he was given word that an American Navy vessel had been attacked by the Israelis and that the U.S. 6th Fleet was sending help, he ordered that the help be recalled. He was terrified 
that the U.S. aircraft would inflict casualties on the Jews attacking the Liberty, and the Jews would blame him. If the Jewish attack on the Liberty became a public incident involving conflict between the United States and Israel, Johnson would be forced to take the American side and might be regarded as anti-Israel, which would turn America's Jews against him. So he sent an emergency message to the Sixth Fleet ordering that the American jets flying to the relief of the Liberty be recalled and that no further assistance be given. Perhaps the stricken ship would sink and the whole matter could be hushed up. But the USS Liberty did not sink, much to the embarrassment of the Jews and their collaborators. The survivors among the crew even managed to get the ship's engines running again, and the Liberty limped out to sea, eventually rendezvousing the next day with an American destroyer, the USS Davis. The wounded crewmen, 171 of them, were airlifted off the ship. Many of the dead, 34 of them, could not be recovered from the interior of the ship until it had reached port in Malta. Even while the wounded crewmen were in a naval hospital, they were given strict orders not to tell anyone, not even members of their own families, about the Jewish attack on their ship. The U.S. Navy went through the formalities of holding a court of inquiry, but it was a complete sham. No Israelis were even questioned during the inquiry, and the U.S. government meekly accepted the Jews' explanation that the attack on the Liberty had been a mistake. The news media were indecently silent about the whole affair. The obvious concern of the Jews and their sympathizers in the United States was not that an American ship had been attacked treacherously and 34 Americans killed. Their concern was only to keep Israel from being blamed for the attack. And the politicians were all too eager to go along with the Jews. The members of Liberty's crew who had been wounded during the Israeli attack asked for damages from the Israeli government. The Israelis refused to pay, and it was necessary for the wounded crewmen to hire attorneys and file suit. When the Israelis did eventually pay nearly two years later, attorneys' fees ate up most of the payment. The commanding officer of the Liberty during the Israeli attack was Captain William McGonagall. Though severely wounded during the attack, he remained at his post throughout and behaved in a heroic manner. A year after the attack, Captain McGonagall was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for his heroism. But so desperate was President Lyndon Johnson to avoid offending the Jews that he refused to present the medal himself, as always has been customary. Instead of receiving his Medal of Honor from the President in the customary White House ceremony, McGonagall was quietly given the medal by the Secretary of the Navy at the Washington Navy Yard so as to attract the least possible public attention. The citation accompanying the medal, which customarily describes in detail the action for which the medal is being awarded, carefully omitted any mention of Israel. The Washington Post did not even report the award.
One of the Liberty's officers, Lieutenant James Ennis, wrote a detailed account of the Jewish attack on his ship and its aftermath. And his account was published in 1979 as a book under the title, Assault on the Liberty. The Jews immediately began a campaign to keep the book out of bookstores and to keep reviews of the book out of newspapers. This campaign was much like the one the Jews have been conducting against one of my books, the Turner Diaries. Ennis reports that whenever a bookstore would stock his book, the local Jews would begin complaining to the store owner that the book is anti-Israel and is, quote, offensive to Jewish people everywhere, close quote. The Jews have been generally successful in keeping the book out of the hands of the public, and it is now out of print and generally unavailable. To his credit, Lieutenant Ennis has kept the truth about the Jewish attempt to sink the liberty alive for 30 years in the face of a concerted effort by the controlled media, the Jewish establishment, and the U.S. government, including the U.S. Navy, to kill this truth. In return for his efforts, the Jews and their collaborators have been calling Ennis an anti-Semite, a neo-Nazi, a professional Jew-hater, and lots of things that are too crude for me to repeat on the air. Among these collaborators of the Jews attacking Ennis are individuals claiming to be veterans and patriots, but it is clear where their allegiance really lies. Ennis always has declined to respond in kind to these attacks and has been unfailingly polite. We might fault him for failing to draw some general conclusions about the Jews and for continuing to maintain that he is not anti-Jewish. But let us instead credit him for standing up for the truth in his own way against the almost unbelievably intense barrage of hatred that has been directed against him. What should be shocking and disgusting to every American, what should outrage us all, is not the lies of the Jews or their attacks on Lieutenant Ennis. We expect that sort of behavior from the Jews. But rather, we should be outraged by the collaboration of the U.S. government with the Jews. During the attack on the Liberty, when it was calling for help and was in danger of being sunk, President Lyndon Johnson recalled the U.S. aircraft that were rushing to assist the Liberty. He was more concerned about not offending the Jews in the United States than he was about his responsibility as Commander-in-Chief of America's Armed Forces. And Johnson's recall of these American jets cannot be explained away as a mix-up or a misunderstanding in the heat of the moment. This action of Johnson's was deliberate. It was consistent with his behavior in every instance involving the liberty. Johnson even checked with the Israeli ambassador a year after the attack to see if the government of Israel had any objection to Captain McGonigal's receiving the Congressional Medal of Honor and then he refused to present the medal himself. That sort of behavior goes beyond outrageous, even for a democratic politician.
It is nothing but the basest treason. Treason! Treason! Now do you understand why we have a piece of filth like Bill Clinton in the White House? We had a piece of filth in the White House 30 years ago. It is the system itself which is filthy. And so it should be no surprise when filthy individuals rise to the top of it. One of these days, we have to change the system itself radically. But that will take a full-scale revolution. What we must do until then is make ourselves heard. What we must do is raise our voices. The reason that Israel is able to lead America around by the nose is that the Jews, through their control of the news and entertainment media in America, have the only effective voice, the only voice that the damnable politicians respond to. Lyndon Johnson didn't betray the men of the liberty because he loved Jews. Nobody loves Jews. They are the most unlovable race on this earth. Johnson behaved as he did because he feared the Jews, and he feared them because he knew that they controlled the political process in this country through their control of the media. That is the key fact, the salient fact, the most important fact in the life of our people today, Jewish control of the media. Why do you think the Jews did such a rash thing as attack the liberty in the first place? That, after all, was a very rash thing to do. If the United States were a nation led by honorable men, a nation in control of its own destiny, such an attack would have meant the end of Israel's existence right then and there. So why did the Jews do it? Are they stupid? I think not. They did it because they knew they could get away with it. They did it because it might have worked, and they had nothing to lose if it didn't work. They knew they could get away with it. And they knew they could get away with it because they control our news and entertainment media. And so, here we are, 30 years into this shameful episode, 30 years after the treacherous and arrogant attack by Israel on the USS Liberty, which killed 34 Americans and wounded 171 of them, an attack which was intended to kill everyone aboard our ship. And for 30 years, the media have maintained their blanket of silence, and the politicians have maintained their sickening pretense about our gallant little Jewish ally in the Middle East. This is the Jewish ally which continues to moan to the world about how it is persecuted by everyone else and continues to make demands on the world for money which it claims the world owes it. Our politicians make pious speeches about China's abuse of human rights, and I have no doubt that the charges against China are true. But then these same politicians vote for more of our money to be given to Israel, a country which murders prisoners of war wholesale and which routinely tortures Palestinians 
suspected of wanting freedom for their people. These are the same politicians who vote for laws requiring that our children be brainwashed with Jewish propaganda about the so-called Holocaust in their schools, and who express their abhorrence of anti-Semitism whenever any American, such as Lieutenant Ennis, tells the nasty truth about our gallant little Jewish ally. Surely, the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah were paragons of virtue and rectitude compared to the current inhabitants of our Congress and our White House and our federal courts. And surely, what happened to the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah will happen to them. But until that cleansing fire comes, let us raise our voices. Let us speak out ever more boldly and ever more loudly. Let us remind all of our fellow citizens about the USS Liberty. And let us also resolve now, let us vow, let us swagger, that we will put an end to the shame that has been brought on us by our government and by the controlled media. You've been listening to Dr. William Pierce, founder of the National Alliance, detailing the facts of the USS Liberty incident. The National Alliance is spearheading the USS Liberty Truth Campaign. Share this broadcast and next week's on social media and via email with your friends and family. Download our Day of Infamy flyer at natall.com slash liberty. That's N-A-T-A-L-L dot com slash liberty, which includes the entire updated text of Dr. Pierce's broadcast, along with new material, and print out hundreds or thousands of copies for distribution in your city, your school, and your neighborhood. If you're low on ink or want large quantities at the highest quality, have them reproduced in bulk at your local print shop or at an online printing company. Get them into the hands of every household in your area. Send them to opinion leaders and public officials. Write letters to the editor and call into radio talk shows and tell people the truth they need to hear. Decent Americans will be outraged at how the media have lied to them and how our alleged ally cynically murdered our men to achieve their inhuman goals. The time is now. Today. Act. Next week, we will pursue the truth of what happened to the Liberty in even greater detail with additional facts that have come to light over the years as patriots and researchers have pierced the Jewish cloak of silence and lies that covers this despicable, bloody act of murder. As we continue with the National Alliance USS Liberty Truth Campaign Part 2. That's all coming up right here on American Dissident Voices.